Hello and welcome everyone once more to Evangelion, Interpreting Scripture and Life. And we're at uh, another very significant, I keep saying very significant, they're all very significant, moment in the letter to the Galatians. And anyone who's been following Paul's argument up to now in Galatians will have one key question in mind. Paul clearly knows what his readers must be thinking, and he asks the question himself, and the question is very plain. Why then the law? Galatians 2, 16 through 21 has already affirmed that justification is on the basis of faith in Christ and not by the exercise of legal works. So if then the law has no soteriological value, that is, it has no contribution directly to make in human salvation, then why would God give it in the first place? Any Jewish reader of Paul's argument, or indeed interested Gentile, would demand an answer to this very question. So let me begin by suggesting some rather important contextual pegs that we need to drive into the ground. Firstly, and unsurprisingly, Paul's answer to the question, why then the law, is neither linear nor straightforward. But as I've often suggested with Paul, his answers rarely are. Secondly, the passage in Galatians 3.20, about which there has been furious wrangling, can be disambiguated if we consider the life and death lens that we've been using to uh, configure the entire letter so far. Thirdly, and perhaps most importantly, the second half of Galatians 3.21 offers what I think is the clearest statement in the entire Pauline corpus for why Paul thinks the law is defective for salvation. Maybe defective is the wrong word. The law doesn't have any soteriological value. This is the clearest statement for why Paul thinks the law uh, is not directly involved in saving humanity. And that is simply that the law is unable to produce life. So once more, it picks up on the very issue that I'm suggesting runs through the entire letter. This whole notion of life emerging from death. The law is unable to make life. It cannot make something alive. It can instruct a person on how to live, which takes us back to the citation of Leviticus 18.5 in Galatians 3.12, but it cannot produce that life of the end time ages, which sets people in right standing before God. That work can only be accomplished by the Spirit, and that's why often the Spirit and the law are held in opposition in the Pauline writings. So let me uh, attempt to break this down. Um, I will read the salient passages. We'll look at Galatians 3 uh, from verses 19 to 25. Um, I have been reading thus far from the New American Standard, so I will continue to. Uh, however, I may well point out a couple of places uh, where a few liberties have been taken uh, with the Greek text. Here's how it reads, Galatians 3.19 and following. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. 
Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Well, he starts in verse 19 here by saying that the law was added. So straight away, we get a sense that the law was not a part of the original plan. The law was added for a particular reason. And Paul gives that reason. It was added because of transgressions. Now, these are, of course, the transgressions of Israel. It's critically important, I think, to understand that the law was given to the Israelites, the Jewish people. Um, it was not just given to the world. The law was not God's gift to the world. It was God's gift to Israel, by which they would know his com commands and his demands and uh, his statutes and his dictates. And they would be the image bearers of God to the nations. However, transgression, although it sounds like another word for sin, uh, is different from sin. Sin simply points to some kind of moral imperfection, but transgression implies the violation of a specific rule. To transgress means to break some law. Now, this idea is picked up far more forcefully in Romans 7 verses 7 through 12. But for here, Paul's purposes seem clear. The law was given to Israel to show that her moral wrongdoings were not just some crisis of internal decision making, but rather an infraction of the divine order. God gave the law to show Israel that her sins were actually violations of his intentions for how human beings are supposed to live. However, it was never God's intention that his people would know right from wrong on the basis of a written code. And that's why it's important to understand that the law was given specifically to Israel because God's purposes for the world were going to look somewhat different. At this point, I think it's worth remembering the terms of what we called in an earlier podcast, the new covenant, this phrase which only appears once in the Hebrew Bible in Jeremiah 31, but it's a very, very important passage. And we read in Jeremiah 31 verse 33, that this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Now listen to this. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God and they shall be my people. We ought also to recall the equivalent prophecy in Ezekiel 36. Remember, um, I suggested in an earlier podcast and uh, Daniel Block and a number of other Old Testament scholars would, would argue a similar case that 
Ezekiel's prophecy of the internalization of spirit is his version of the new covenant prophecy that we read in Jeremiah. So whereas Jeremiah talks about the internalization of law, Ezekiel talks about the internalization of spirit. And he writes this in Ezekiel 36 verses 26 to 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I think at this point, it's equally helpful to remember Paul's own words from 2 Corinthians 3, 2-6. This is one of the few places where Paul himself uses the phrase new covenant. Now, he never uses it in Galatians, but as will become clear in my argument, um, I think that the new covenant blessings reaching fulfillment undergird the letter to the Galatians as well. But Paul's fairly explicit about this in 2 Corinthians 3 in 2 to 6, where he effectively brings together the prophecies of Ezekiel and the prophecies of Jeremiah um, into one moment. This is what he writes, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, verse 2 to 6. You are our letter, written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ towards God, not that we are inadequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What Paul's saying there is that the ultimate destiny of the law was not stone tablets as they were brought down from Sinai, but ultimately, as Jeremiah predicted, God's law, all his statutes and commands and dictates were destined to be inscribed on human hearts. They were, in, they were destined to become an internal reality. People were supposed to be able to engage with everything that God desires. Firstly, that of course is everything encoded in the law, but everything that God demands, we should know as an inner reality, as an inner experience. And the way that we know that is through the spirit, the spirit of the living God. And so we see both Jeremiah's idea of God's law being inscribed on the hearts and Ezekiel's idea of it being inscribed on the hearts by spirit as coming together in this one great moment in 2 Corinthians. And what I'm suggesting is that actually Galatians preempts this moment by Paul describing both the role of the spirit and the role of the law. So um, back then to Galatians 3. Um, Paul writes that not only was the law added because of transgressions in um, chapter 3 verse 19, but that it was ordained through angels. Now this reflects two ideas. The first is the tradition uh, the angels were present at the giving of the law. We see that in Acts 7 verse 53, in Hebrews 2 verse 2. Uh, and if any of you are familiar with the Jewish historian Josephus, 
he mentions it in one of his major works, uh, the book called Antiquities. In book 15 of the Antiquities, he mentions it. And it's in a few other places as well. It's in Psalm 67, I think, and uh, certainly one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, community, uh, the Damascus document, um, it's, uh, it's there as well. But not only does it reflect that tradition uh, of angels being present at the law giving, and of course, if you actually look at the Exodus narratives where we read about the giving of the law, there's no mention of angels. It is just a tradition. But it also says something about the secondary nature of the law giving. Now, remember when Paul talked about the gospel that was imparted to him, it was revealed directly from God to him. The law, however, has passed through some hands. It's passed through, in some sense, the hands of angels. And then it's passed through the hand of this mediator that Paul goes on to speak about. It was given through the hand of a mediator. Now, uh, the translation I read said the agency of a mediator. I think hand of the mediator is is a, a, a stricter translation of the Greek. And I think it's an important phrase because the same phrase, hand of a mediator, um, appears in other uh, Jewish texts. And what that helps to tell us is that this mediator is intended to be Moses. Now, in, in verse 19, it's a mediator. He's using the sort of the general case here, that when something is passed through the hands uh, of a mediator, um, it, there's something indirect about what's being passed. And I think Paul wants to stress the external nature of the law. The law at this point is written on stone tablets. It's not in the hearts of people. And so the original law giving was a very externalized idea and an externalized event. And the fact that it passed through hands, I think, emphasizes this. And the fact it passed through angels and through a mediator is his way of saying this is the law on the outside of people. This isn't the law that gives life. This is the law which you're supposed to follow and be able to live reasonably and live um, under God's commands. But remember, that's not the ultimate destiny of the law. The law's true aim is to be in people's hearts. Now, as I've said, the mediator is clearly intended to be Moses. Now, in verse 20, um, it should read now the mediator. The Greek does have a definite article. Some translations, like the one I just read, in fact, has have an indefinite article there, which, is, which shouldn't be the case. Um, it's now the mediator, it says, is not of one. Now, again, the translation I read said one party only. The words party only aren't in the Greek. It simply says now the mediator is not of one. Now, I think Paul calls Moses the mediator here because at this juncture in the argument, what matters is the nature of the giving of the law. It's the mediation of the law, not the content of the law that matters. It was given on stone tablets as an external thing. It wasn't in the hearts of people yet. And it was given only to Israel. These are the details of the mediation. And so when we get to this rather confusing passage in chapter 3, verse 20, it actually makes good sense. It says, now the mediator is not of one, but God is one. What does he mean? Well, if God is one, if there's only one God, and he is the only God who's over everyone, then he must be the God of Jew and Gentile as well. This is a point which is actually made towards the end of Romans 3. 
He's not just the God of Jews, he's God of all creation, God of all the nations, all the peoples. So when Paul says that he's not the mediator, he's the mediator not of one, he means that the mediator is only the representative of Israel, i.e. Moses. But God is Lord over all peoples, not just Israel. And as such, the law was only given, you know, having only been given to Israel, could not be the final word of, on God's plan of salvation. There's only one God and he's God of all people, but the law is only given to one people, i.e. the Israelites. So the mediator is not of one. He's not of one unified family of all peoples. He's just of Israel. Moses was the mediator of the law to Israel. But if there's only one God, he must be God overall. And so something else must be afoot. Something else must be about to uh, affirm God as Lord over all people. And again, there's no ambiguity in Paul's mind about what, or should I say who, that is. So then comes another inevitable question which Paul foresees uh, at the beginning of verse 21. Is the law then somehow at odds with the promise that God made to Abraham? The law has been added and the law was only for Israel. But remember, the promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing to the nations. Again, we see this. God was going to bless all peoples through Abraham, not just Israel. So does that mean that the law and the promise are at odds? And Paul answers with an unambiguous no. Paul's problem has never been with the law as such, but rather with how the law has been appropriated by people who are ignorant of Jesus. In other words, Paul's problem is people who try to be justified by the law because they've misunderstood its role. That was never the role that God gave it. And then what comes next, I think, is the crunch statement, one of the key statements for understanding Galatians. If the law had been given, which has the power to impart life, then the law would bring people into right relation with God. And so, again, here we see verse 20 being reinforced. The law only given to Israel was never intended to bring people into right relation with God. It was merely the plan for them to obey God's commands. But to actually be in right relationship with God, something needs the power to bring life from death. People are in the deadness of sin. God did not imbue the law with the power to reverse that. That power only comes from the risen life of Christ, which reverses um, death and brings forth life. And only the spirit can mediate that risen life into people. So with this, you know, these ideas firmly in place, Paul then turns to a different set of metaphors to describe the law. In verses 22 and 23, he employs two Greek words which are effectively synonyms. And they, they mean something like lockdown or incarcerate or shut up under to depict what the law did to Israel. It shut Israel up under sin. And locking Israel down under sin had one express purpose, which uh, he suggests um, in uh, verses um, 22 and 23 and goes on to reinforce it in 24. 
and the express purpose of locking Israel down under sin was to point Israel to Christ. And in that sense, law was almost like a teacher showing Israel the way to Christ. And so Paul employs a different metaphor in verses 24 and 25, and that is the meta metaphor of the pedagogue. Now, this is the most literal translation of the Greek word paedagogos, um, which in English is variously translated as tutor, as uh, in the translation that I read earlier. Sometimes it's translated steward or disciplinarian, something like that. In the ancient world, the pedagogue was the slave in the house whose responsibility it was to um, look after the children, to take them to school, to bring them home, and in some cases to teach them basic etiquette. So this is another way that Paul describes the role of the law with the ultimate duty of pointing the Jews to Christ. It was treating the Jews almost like children and leading them into a particular place. I often like to think of it like this. Imagine that sin is a prison and the law is the prison guard. And the door to the prison can only be opened with a special key, and that key is faith, which is held in the hands of the prison guard, i.e. in the hands of the law. And the only person who can turn the key and open the door is the Messiah. This, to me, sums up what Paul is trying to say about the law. Anyone trapped in that prison, um, that prison of sin, which is being guarded by the law, the only way out of the prison, the only way out of sin, is to have faith which opens the door. And that faith, that trust is in Messiah, who is the only one who can turn the key. So then, summing up, why then did God give the law? The law was given to Israel to show their sins to be transgressions until the coming of the seed. Remember that word seed that he uses in verse 19. We already know from verse 16 that the seed is Christ. The coming of Christ, the coming of faith and the coming of new life are one synonymous event. Uh, at this point, when Christ comes, the law's role comes to an end. And that's why Paul can say, for example, in Romans 10 verse 4, that Christ is the culmination of the law. The law is like a roadmap to Christ. Once you get there, you don't need the map anymore. Of course, without the map, you could never have got there in the first place. And certainly it helps at times to look back at the map and retrace your steps. So the law will never be defunct in that sense. And it serves a purpose often in, in re-steering people to Christ when they drift. But people are in the deadness of sin. And to be reconciled to God means to be made alive from that deadness. And God simply did not afford the law with that special power. That power um, is purely in the life of Christ, the risen life of Christ, which is conveyed into the faithful by the Holy Spirit. Now, in chapters five and six, Paul's going to interact again with the law in binary opposition to the spirit. And it'll become even more clear that the ultimate goal of the law is to become an inner reality in the life of God's people. But for now, we may surmise the following. When someone's in right relation to God, the impulse to do what's right doesn't come from any legal code. It doesn't come just from reading a book of rules. Now, of course, we may read the Bible to understand how we're supposed to live. But ultimately, the impulse to do what's right emerges from the very relationship with God itself. 
Now, I think the term relationship with God has become somewhat bland and plastic, and it often denotes little more than some nebulous conception of there being something out there beyond the material world, which we try to connect with here and there. Now, when Paul talked about human beings being justified by faith in Christ before God, he could never have meant something that trivial. As he described in his own experience in Galatians 2, 19 through 21, to be justified is to be reawakened and drawn away from the path of deadness to sin into an entirely new way of viewing the world. And within this scheme is a new ethical barometer, the spirit. The spirit authorizes consciousness of the risen Christ in the faithful. And it's in this Christ consciousness which guides humanity into knowing what is right and wrong in God's eyes without a law. You know, in life, people often need uh, rules and regulations uh, to steer them. But the purpose of any code of rules and regulations ought to be to work itself out of a job as the practitioner matures. And in fact, this will be the subject of Galatians 4, 1 through 7, which we'll look at in a couple of podcasts time. As we mature, the need for strict rules and regulations ought to decline, just as when children grow up. When they're really young, they need close micromanagement. But if they still need that close micromanagement in their late 20s, then something's clearly wrong. As we reflect on the role of the law, let's also reflect on our maturing in the faith and that sense of Christ consciousness which leads us into right practice. The author of the book of Hebrews lamented the community's heel dragging in learning the basics of the faith. He called them spiritual babies who still needed to be breastfed, even though physically they were mature adults who ought to be able to feed themselves on solid food. Prayerfully, Paul's words will strike a similar chord in us as we listen and pray and reflect. Prayerfully, we'll become increasingly attuned to that still small voice of God's spirit, which draws us both into right relation with him and into a lifestyle that pleases him.